The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 7, and we will read through to the end of the book. What you're about to hear really is the word of God. It's been given to you as a kingly gift. Please listen to it as such. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured In all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. You may be seated. This morning and then this afternoon, Lord willing, we will be finishing up the book of uh, Colossians. It has been, uh, I've really enjoyed it and, uh, well, that seems really obvious anytime we're in God's word, we should enjoy it, but uh, some are just really rich and and Colossians has been that, at least for me. You can learn uh, a lot by eavesdropping on a conversation. That seems like an odd way to start a sermon. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll try to, sometimes you hear more uh, when people don't think you're listening. No, again, that sounds bad. I'll just try a different route altogether. Uh, sometimes we, we, we can teach quite uh, directly, but more is said by actions later on. Right, sometimes, and that's, that was where I was like, 
awkwardly trying to get to with the eavesdropping comment. Uh, Sometimes you learn a lot about a person or about a relationship when you hear them talking and they don't know that you can, well, can hear them talking, right? If you hear um, a husband on the phone to his wife, there can be a warmth and a tenderness there that you're just like, wow. Well, he didn't intend necessarily for me to pick up on that. There's, there's, There's warmth there that you don't usually kind of get to see. The same is true of sometimes, I guess on the other side of things, we could talk the right kind of way, we could give the right kind of advice, but much more potent than that is the way that we live out our lives, not in front of others in order to be seen by others, but just we live life in uh, a community with each other. I'll give you one more example, and this kind of more on the negative side, I guess. But if you were to ask a husband for advice on marriage, oftentimes the advice, it would hopefully be like pretty good. But watching the way he treats his wife, wouldn't that speak louder? It'd be one thing if he's like, listen, you always got to be patient. You always, I mean, but, but then like if he goes home and he's not that, well, what he said is undermined by what he did. Similarly, and you're probably wondering, where on earth is this going? Similarly, we get an eavesdrop, as it were, to Paul speaking to uh, several people in his life that he desperately loved. And while the beginning of the book of Colossians was aimed directly at us in a teaching way, it's almost like, and I get he wrote it down and so he knows we would read it, but it's almost like we get to see the very things he taught us in the book of Colossians lived out in real life in the way that he kind of wraps this conclusion up. He shows us by the way that he lives that the same gospel he preached to us that he said could transform our lives into the likeness of Christ, well, that same gospel has transformed him. Paul speaking to us about not just salvation, but church life, for him it was not an academic exercise. For him it was real life. It was really the way that he lived. It was really the way that he conducted himself. And we can see a glimpse in verses 7 through 18 of what life was like here in this context in which Paul writes. He's writing to real people who had real uh, struggles, real difficulties, and he's really one who desperately loves them. And if we could take this passage of Scripture, which maybe even as I read it, you thought, this is going to be an odd section of text. If we just step back a moment from it, And if you would permit me to ask a question that we could hang over this text both this morning and this afternoon, it would be this. What is the church? Maybe you could sharpen it and say, well, what is the church supposed to be? We would get, or quickly enough, that there are times in which a church is something that she ought not to be. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is if we could ask the question, what what is the church, what what ought it be? A people who are transformed by the gospel of Christ, this side of salvation, and yet this side of eternity, what does life in that kind of a church look like? I think Colossians 4, 7 through 18 
would answer it. And I think we could find eight marks of a church. You might say eight for this morning, for this afternoon. Relax. Big breath in and then out. So asking that question together, what is the church or what should the church ought to be? The first element would be this. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of all kind of people. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of all kinds of people. If you were to just look at this text as a whole, you you would notice that there's, well, by my count, uh, 12 different names, at least two different churches being addressed, uh, entire different parts of the world, Paul being probably in Rome, uh, some who would be ending up going to uh, Asia Minor, some who would be passing through Greece. I mean, it, it spans... Uh, well, locations as far as uh, prison or not in prison and uh, Rome or different parts of the Roman Empire. And it, it kind of encompasses all of that. And I'd like to briefly, I, I really do mean briefly, hold me to that. I don't know how you would, but just hold me to that. Um, we, I want to go through some of these names, well, probably all 12 of them, and I want to just maybe give some details to who on earth all these names are. Paul does not name all of these people by accident. It's not like he had a word count. You know what you did in college. You had a word count, and you're like, man, I need to start using some adjectives in here. <sighs> That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is genuinely pouring out his heart for real people that he loved. And some of these names we would know. We would have some idea who Luke is. I'm sure even as I said Tychicus, you wanted to say like, well, bless you. I don't know what just happened there, but (laughs) something. So if you just look through the text with me, verse 7, we're introduced to uh, Tychicus. Tychicus is uh, somebody whose name means fortunate. He is a faithful courier of Paul. He's mentioned on five or four of five different occasions in Paul's ministry. He's the one who would carry the letter of the Ephesians. He's the one who would probably carry this letter and the letter of Philemon all together. If you're going to trust someone to carry uh, this kind of communication that isn't just simply you writing a letter, but knowing that you are actually writing to the church of God, the very word of God, you would pick someone who could be trusted. We would all have people in our life where we'd go, uh, no, I'll keep looking. All right, Tychicus wasn't that guy. Tychicus is a faithful person. You actually find him throughout all of uh, the life of Paul's ministry, and he's mentioned in the last letter. So he stays with Paul all the way to the end, and Paul sends him, to go to Ephesus to either assist uh, Timothy as the pastor in Ephesus or possibly something has happened to Timothy. Uh, We know ultimately from church history, Timothy is martyred. So perhaps it was after that that he sends Tychicus to go and to to help the church in a ministerial role. That's Tychicus. Onesimus, whose name oddly enough means useful, is a, well, he's a runaway slave. He's a fugitive Phrygian slave who, turning his back on all the things he should have done in his life, runs away and in God's providential sense of humor, intersects Onesimus with Paul's life. And Onesimus, who began as an unbelieving 
pagan is radically converted and sent back with Tychicus back to, well, the place he ran away from. Would that be a bit of an awkward meeting? I think so. But he went back anyway. And it's about all we know of Onesimus. Aristarchus, verse 10, is a, uh, his name means best ruler. So if any of you name your kid Aristarchus, I know you have great things in mind. He is a fellow prisoner of Paul's. He's a cellmate. For as weird of a way of describing someone as that is, he's actually in prison with the Apostle Paul. He's listed as one of the few Jewish converts that Paul is ministering with. And I love Aristarchus. You might say that's just because he has a weird name. No, that's not the reason. Well, he does have a cool name, but that's not the only reason. You actually find Aristarchus in Acts 19, 29. The city of, I believe it's Ephesus, but I didn't write it down, is filled with confusion, and the crowd or the mob rush together into the theater, and they're dragging two guys that they're really upset with for preaching the gospel, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who, Paul, who were Paul's companions. So as the church is beginning to, to, to radically up and the, well, the social order in Ephesus, and people are realizing that their idols are being challenged. At the middle of that is this dog of a man, Aristarchus. And he's dragged and beaten, and they actually like haul him into a sports stadium and shout at them for hours, and the dude still has fight in him because, like we saw many times in First Samuel, he's a dude. I love this guy. He has fight in him. I like a guy like that. He not only gets dragged and beaten, but he's like, I'm, I want more. He apparently is still doing the stuff that you get beaten up for because he's in prison with Paul. And the one thing he says isn't like, hey, call my lawyer. He says, hey, say hi to that church. They're good people over there. I like, I like this guy. It's all we know of him is he gets arrested and beaten up for the gospel. What more do you need to know about somebody? He mentions uh, in verse uh, 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, his Jewish name being John, his Latin name being Mark. He, you would know him as the author of the second uh, gospel. Mark's mom was probably the owner of the upper room where Jesus would have celebrated the the. Well, with the Last Supper with his uh, disciples. And so you can imagine John, or John Mark as a young man being raised in that kind of uh, situation this many years, probably 20, 25 years later, still in the church. So John Mark is kind of like a, the quintessential church kid who's been raised in and around it. He gets handpicked to go on the first missionary journey. It doesn't go well. We'll talk about that this afternoon. Uh, but he shows up here. So, somewhere along the way, restoration has happened, and John Mark is, is mentioned here among those whom Paul is writing about. Then we inter, uh, intersect a person who's, verse 11, his name is Jesus. Good call on opting to go by justice. After the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, I'm sure that name was like, you know what? I'll just go for the nickname. Uh, that name feels a little uh, above me. It's about all we know of him. We, we, we know that he has 
one name but is called another. He seems to be of the Jewish converts. And that's all that we know about this person whose name shows up at the end of the book of Colossians. Epaphras was the first one that brought the gospel to the Colossian church. He was that really zealous evangelist who always uh, didn't shy away from awkward conversations and putting tracts in people's hands. However it worked out in the first century, uh, Epaphras was that guy. And while he doesn't mention it in this letter, he mentions it in the sister letter of uh, Philemon, Uh, Epaphras is also imprisoned with him. Epaphras is not just an evangelist, but Epaphras is someone who did time for the gospel. The gospel is that important to him, that he would both um, spread the gospel and then be willing to suffer for the gospel. Luke is a name that you would recognize, author of uh, Luke Acts, make up probably roughly one-third of the New Testament, Luke being a Gentile author, so one of the first fruits of the gospel going to the nations. Luke, uh, by all accounts, seems to be a previous slave who had been set free. Probably would have been a slave and and in the carrying out of those duties, gotten his medical training and then at some point is set free and is one of Paul's most faithful um, dudes, whatever you call it. He it goes from Paul early, and he was the last one with him at the end. The book of uh, Timothy, he mentions that Luke alone is with me. It seems from church history that uh, Luke, being the last one with him, would likely have witnessed the execution of the Apostle Paul and would have had to have been the one to arrange for any burial uh, processions after that. Demas, we don't know anything about him except what happens at the end of 2 Timothy, uh, which isn't great, and we'll get to that in the afternoon. Uh, Nympha seems to be a lady at whose house the church meets. It's the only place she's ever mentioned. Archippus uh, was the, seems to be the pastor at the church of Colossae, or one of the pastors, and his dad is Philemon, who will that same day be getting a really uh, awkward letter called Philemon, where Paul talks about taking a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus back as a brother, uh, and, and that he'd be welcomed back into the church. But it's all we know of Archippus. These names, along with so many other names, if you were to look at the end of Romans or look at the end of any of the epistles, so often there are all these names. You might say, what on earth am I supposed to glean from all of these names that I probably won't remember beyond this afternoon, if even that long? The thing I would take away from it is this. The church is made up of all kinds of people. Even just in those brief descriptions. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, rich and poor, white collar and blue collar, educated and otherwise, city slickers and hicks from the sticks. All of them are are wrapped up in the church. The church is made up of all kinds of people, which means that every repentant sinner is welcomed in the church of Jesus Christ. It does not matter in the sense of, like it matters because it shapes you, but it doesn't matter if you were a pagan who was converted late in life or a church kid like Mark. The church is both. 
It doesn't matter if you were like independently wealthy and could house, well, a whole church at your house like Nympha, or if you were a guy who was a slave, isn't a slave, and who knows if he has anything. You're welcomed in the church. The church is a place where all kinds of people are welcome. So if the thought would cross the mind, I'm not welcome in the church of Jesus Christ, that is a, a, a lie of a thought. All are welcomed in the church. You might say, well, I'm a great sinner. I, I've, I've sinned a lot. Welcome to a place full of people who, guess what? Ah, I've sinned a lot. Yeah, it's full of people who have had their lives radically transformed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he delighted to do it not because of who they were, but he did it in spite of it. He delights to take those who were slaves in their sin and set them free in Christ. He delights to take those who were spiritually destitute and poor and make them rich beyond measure in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a place where all are welcomed in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means, number one, if you feel out of place, We'll just realize I'm welcomed here. The other, and this is where we meddle a little bit. If someone comes in who's very much not like you, rejoice that the Lord has brought yet another one into the fold. And we couldn't think of them if they're a repentant say, or if they're a repentant sinner who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We couldn't say to them, "Well, you don't belong here." Well, they do. They do. We, they, they belong here as much as we do. You might say, well, I've been here a long time. doesn't matter. They're here. They're new. All are welcomed in the church of Jesus Christ. That is the first of the elements we would see just by glancing at some of the names. The second element that we want to consider from this text this morning is the church is a family. The church is a family. Now, if you wonder about the truthfulness of the first point, that God delights to save all kinds of people, all you'd have to do to prove that that's true is look around. Like you can go ahead and do it this morning and be like, wow, all kinds of people he delights to save. And all of those varieties, guess what he does with that huge, wildly diverse group of folks? He makes them into a family, which seems like an, a bit of an odd thing. If you were to see my brothers, you would say, I can tell. Y'all were cut from the same cloth. They're handsome dudes. That may not be your opinion, but I choose to believe it. So, we would look like each other, and you could say, wow, they're in, they're in the same family. If you were to look around here, you'd be like, I don't know what on earth these people have in common with one another. Well, there's a family resemblance that doesn't show up in our physical appearance. But is there a family resemblance? Well, there is. Isn't every man, woman, or child who's in the Lord Jesus Christ forgiven of their sin, a recipient of the Spirit, a washed in the blood of Christ, united to the person of Christ, and given all of the inheritance of the Lord. Well, yeah, all of that is them. And so there's some, there's one earmark in particular that we'll look at in a minute, that show 
a family resemblance in the church. He takes a group of a whole bunch of all kind of people and he makes them into a family. You can see this very language showing up right in our text. Look at verse seven. He says of Tychicus, he's a beloved, what's the word he uses? Well, brother. If you drop down and look at verse nine of Onesimus, he is a faithful and beloved brother. Brother is not simply, I know this might, this might really upset some people's apple carts. Brother is not something you call someone in the church when you forget their name. It can work in that situation, unless it's a sister, in which case don't call her brother. But that's not, what we, that's not why we use that. It's not that awkward, like, oh, hey, brother. Oh, man, what was that guy's name? You go home and look through the uh, church directory and try to figure out who on earth said hi to you this morning. That's not what that's about. The word that Paul is using, brother, he's using it of a person who is not physically speaking. They, they don't share a mom and dad on the earth. They're family. But they're not family in the way that the world would only ever see family. They're really part of a church family. Paul equates this idea of brothers and the church in verse 15. He uses them interchangeably. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and the church. They're the same entity. To be in the church is to be in the family. To be in the family is to be in the church. They are one and the same. And you might say, well, how is it that I get into the family? Well, it's very easy. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit of God takes a repenting sinner and unites them inseparably to the Lord Jesus Christ, they become one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then simultaneously, they become, well, united to who else? Everyone else who's united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for good, bad, or indifferent... When I was brought into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and I was, I was knit inseparably to Christ, I, in a sense, now have real family union with like a Mark Barnett or a Steve Nugent or a Carrie Grabo. I have real union with them. They're really my brother. I'm really theirs. And if you're in Christ this morning, you really have union with them. They really are your family. It's not something we say to be like, well, we're a family around here and not like mean it. It, 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 it really, and, and you'd say, well, where do we get this kind of family language? Well, we'd get it from a place like Matthew chapter 12 from the Lord himself. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, he's actually talking of a physical mother and brother in this instance, stood outside and they asked to speak with him. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You can even see in the language that, with which the Lord taught us to pray. You can't pray the way the Lord Jesus taught you to pray without even invoking familial language. What did he teach you to say? Our Father, who's in heaven, familial language. 
When you're saved, you're brought into a family. When you're saved, you're brought into union with Christ. And we share, for lack of a better way of putting it, we share blood. But just not the stuff that courses through our veins. Both or all of us washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth hits uh, very sharply to those who either have no family or who have a really bad earthly family. The church comes as a welcomed relief to them. Sometimes can be hard, but is a welcomed relief. I remember one of my dear, dear friends, he was born and raised in an entirely different country under an entirely different religion. And when he came over to the United States uh, to be educated at college, he was evangelized by a friend got radically transformed by the gospel, and guess what his family did to him? Cut him off. And so for him, the church really was my family. People in his position get it better than some of us. The church is not a family to those who don't have a good family. The church is a family to everyone who is a Christian. And so if you're like myself, I have a wonderful family that is... Uh, professing and, and they're Christians. But it doesn't mean I go, oh, it's good the church is a family for other people who don't have what I have. The church is that family for everyone. The church is full of brothers and sisters and mothers with whom we have far more in common than those who share blood and DNA. I have more in common with you than I do my earthly brother. Why? Well, we share more. We have Christ together. What more could you have in common beyond Christ? Like the same looks and hair color? That's not a lot when compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is that kind of a family. And being that family that is composed of all kinds of different people, wouldn't you think that there might be an occasion uh, once in a while, maybe three times a year, where it's hard to be around other family members? Maybe in other churches and not here, I guess. Well, yeah, no, you're in a church full of people who like think differently than you and who act differently than you, eat differently than you. And in love, we try to cover that multitude of a sin. But anyway, we, we have lots of occasions for the exercise of, well, love to one another. And that would actually be that third mark of the church. A church is a, well, it's made up of all kinds of people who Christ has brought into one family. And in that family, we love one another and care for each other. Now the question that might arise very quickly is something like this. It's hard to love people differently than me. You're like, that wasn't a question. That was a statement. However you want to ask it or say it, is it hard to love people who are different than you? Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it can be. If you look at why the world loves who the world loves, don't they love one another for that you're just like me? Often which is really like self-centered, like I love me so much, I love people who look just like me. That's messed up, but we're not even gonna, t- we're not gonna, we're not gonna go down that road. 
the world would look at the church and be like, I don't understand what a sophisticated Brit like Jenny O'Connor has in common with a hick from the woods of Washington. What on earth do they have in common? Everything. And despite me being a hick, Jenny loves me. And I'm thankful for it. And even though she's a Brit, we said, hey, take a hike a couple hundred years ago. We're friends. (laughs) She came around and moved over here. She made the right choice. So, we don't love one another because, worldly speaking, we're just like each other. I get really concerned at churches that are like, there's about a four-year age difference between everybody, and everyone has the same kind of jobs. What has the gospel done? Almost nothing. It's not, any, it's not discernible from the rest of the world. That's the way the world loves each other. But when you see a church with all sorts of old people and young people and people from all kinds of different backgrounds and they, and they love one another, well, then you're looking at something that only the gospel can do. Only the gospel can bring together folks from all these different backgrounds and they genuinely love one another. Look at verse uh, 7. He calls Tychicus a beloved brother, a brother whom I love. Verse 9, he uh, refers to Onesimus as a beloved brother, one whom he loves. If you look at verse 14, Luke The beloved physician. I mean, he can't even talk about those in the church without tripping over the word. I love that guy. The church loves each other. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Or the next verse, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's that family mark. That's that family trait. It's not hair color or eye color or height or lack of height. It is that you love one another. Jesus said here, the world will look at you and there'll be this defining mark by which they'll say, that guy's a Christian. Wait, how do you know? How can you tell? Look. He loves these other people in his life that he's no business loving. He loves weird people. And he goes to this place every Sunday and spends time with them. He doesn't get anything out of it that we can tell. And week after week, some of them for 10, 20, 30 years, he's been going to the same place out in the middle of a cow field. There's nothing that explains that. Well, there is. He's been loved much, and that love that Christ has shown him has transformed him so that he loves the church. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and indeed knows God. You can tell that they love each other in this text beyond just the few occasions in which Paul says the word beloved you can see in, uh, in verse 10 and verse 12 and verse 14 over and over again, this idea of this person greets you. This person greets you. I say, oh, you're, are you really reading into the word greet? Uh, yeah, I actually, I, I don't think it's reading in. I actually think it's uh, very much there. Isn't sending the greeting to another person an expression of love? 
If you were to see someone and, and you knew that they were going to visit someone who you desperately loved, what would you tell them before they left? Say hi from me. It's actually an expression of love. Now, it, it, it's not used in this sense like passive aggressively. It's not like you find out a friend's going to go see somebody who you hate and you're like, hey, say hi to them. Like, no, that's, that's not what's going on. They're not getting in like weird passive-aggressive digs at people in the church that they have beef with. No, they genuinely, even in the midst of prison, when you might be like, hey, you might want to come over and help, what does he say? Say hi to them. The pain of distance so pinched the heart that they couldn't let a letter leave the cell without saying, make sure that that that." Group of folks know I love them. The church can't help but love one another when functioning properly. There's a warmth in this whole section. And you got to imagine being in their position. Do you know if you are Paul or if you're Tychicus or if you are Epaphras, if you will ever see them again? You don't. You, you, you just don't. And so each occasion for them was this occasion upon which they would express their love for each other. And it even flows beyond that. It, there's mention in verse 7 through 9 of uh, Tychicus will tell you everything. He'll report how it is. Isn't that true of the way when you love someone and they're separated from you? Don't you long to hear how is it going with you? Even when, I think it was just a couple months ago, we uh, had the uh, privilege of FaceTiming um, Megan. Don't you long to hear how is it going with you? Why do you want to know what's going on in Poland? You love her. Yeah, you actually care about her. You so love her that your heart aches to hear. Tell me of what God's doing that's good. Tell me what's going like bad, and I can pray for you. Like, love is the thing that then drives the, the desire to hear how it's going, and Paul says, like, he's concerned. He wants their hearts encouraged, verse 8. Verse 9, he wants them to be told everything, not just the scantest of details, and then lastly, there, there's an element of love and care that shows up in verse 10, right at the end. He's talked about how Aristarchus greets them as well as Mark. And then there's, at least in the ESV, there's a parenthetical or set off by parentheses statement. Concerning Mark, you've received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. We'll talk in the afternoon to maybe why specific instruction had to be told to welcome Mark. Like, was he really that bad of a guy that you had to be told? Like, no, not necessarily. But the church is actually given, it's, it's in the, the imperative, it's actually commanded to welcome Mark should he stop by. Doesn't that echo a whole lot, the truth and, the, and the, the, just the, the, the piece of church life that Paul taught in Romans 15, 7? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Part of welcoming other believers whom you don't know or are new to you 
it isn't like you just have this itch and awkward conversation scratches that. If that's you, awesome. I, I struggle with going up to new people and be like, I don't know you. Hi. This is awkward, but you're, like, you're awkward anyway. Just lean into it. That's true. But there's something that goes on in the function of a church welcoming. Paul tells you what it is. He says that you do it just as Christ welcomed you. Now, I want to meddle here for just a second because I, well, I want to. So, is it easy to get really comfortable in a bigger church? I'd consider this a bigger church. And to not go out of your way to welcome new people. It's easy. I confess it's easy. Should we go out of our way to do it? Absolutely. You say, why? Because Christ welcomed you. You could say he went out of his way, like from heaven down to the earth, to welcome you to himself. And so when the church engages in welcoming activity to newcomers, she's actually doing to one another what Christ has done to them. You actually get the opportunity to do to another image bearer who's been forgiven the thing that's happened to you from Christ. I get to be the one who welcomes them to this church. And while it is easy to feel uh, just really comfortable and not feel the need to be welcoming, you feel it a lot more when you're a really little church and you're like, oh, a new person. That's like 18% of our attendance. Hello. <laughs> not so much now. The, the other side is also true. It's really easy to feel alone in a big room full of people. It's really easy. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as Christ has welcomed you, to not grow slack in our welcoming of one another. To, when you see someone and you're like, I don't know them, use that as like a cue to be like, I should go meet them. Worst case scenario, you've introduced yourself many times, and while they'll wonder at your memory, they'll be like, hey, nice guy. That's the worst case scenario. Welcome one another. The fourth mark of a, of a church. They pray for each other. What is a church? A church is people who pray for each other. Look at down at verse 12. Epaphras, that evangelist to uh, Colossae, that, that one who probably served in some uh, ministerial form or fashion in the church there, separated from them, is heartbroken to be separate from them, to, as we find out from another letter, to be, well, probably hindered from going back to them by being in uh, prison for the gospel. Uh, Epaphras is one uh, of you who's a servant of Christ, he greets you. Now notice how Paul describes Epaphras. What, what a biography of a Christian. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Epaphras was someone, and like if you're in jail with a guy, you probably learn what he prays for, especially if he prays out loud. Um, so Paul, in, in being with Epaphras and ministering with him, and when they would have times of prayer, guess what Epaphras is, is, well, he uses the word, always doing. He's praying, praying for the church. In fact, the word that he uses uh, for always, the word for struggling, 
it's the, it's the Greek word that we would get our English word agony from. Epaphras agonizes over you in prayer. What a mark of a Christian. And he prays all the time for them. And the sense isn't that it is some a kind of rote list that he, he just like burns through quickly at the beginning of the day to get it over with. He genuinely was pouring out his heart for them. And in those agonizing prayers emerged two big prayer requests. The first is this, <clears throat> excuse me, that they would stand mature. The idea behind this request to, to stand mature means that they would stand and that the the idea behind maturity is, is that of a, a developed moral sense. Maybe we could understand it better if we took it in the negative. He prayed that you would not morally fall. He prayed that you would morally stand. What a prayer for his brothers and sisters. That he in a jail cell was pouring out his heart, Lord, don't let them fall. Don't let them fail. Don't let them be deceived by the enemy. Don't let them get swept up in the love of the world. Don't let them be drawn off course. Don't let them... Over and over and over again, he would pray that they would not morally fail. If you've been in the church for any length of time, or you've been a Christian for any length of time, is this not a desperately important prayer? Maybe when you're new to the church, you don't see it. Maybe it's something you only see after like five years, 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years. The list just gets bigger of people that you used to worship right next to who aren't here anymore. And I'll confess that when that happens, one of the first thoughts that crosses my mind it's just this, it's a, it's, it's, a, I don't, it's a sharp pain. I didn't pray as I should have. You see someone that you were with, you didn't know that the doubts or the sin or the things were brooding in the background. You didn't know it. You didn't pray as you should have. You didn't pray, Lord, keep them. And when they fall, it, doesn't it pain your heart? And you just, it's just like the, a real sense of guilt. I didn't hold them up like I should have. I didn't storm the mercy seat like I should have. Pray for each other. Pray agonizingly for each other. That you wouldn't fall. You might say, there's a lot of people in the church. That's a lot of people to pray for. Absolutely. Use the directory if you don't have a, a list or something in your mind. Do, do some way of praying. Lord, keep them. Even if you just had to pray, Lord, you know, you know the folks who go to church with me. Keep them from falling morally. The second prayer that, uh, that Paul, or that, excuse me, that Epaphras prays for the church in Colossae isn't just that they would stand morally, but secondly, that they would be fully assured in all the will of God. I say, what does it mean for them to be assured 
of God's will or of God's providence. The idea is they were all Arminians. Paul's like, they need to get Calvinism, Lord, get it into their bones. That's not what it was about. But the fact that you laughed means it wasn't funny. So, or didn't laugh. He's not praying like, Lord, they don't understand sovereignty. No, no, I I think they get sovereignty. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think they get sovereignty. But the context to which that church in particular was in, it depends on, on when exactly some of these events happened, but they had trials and trouble in their past. They had trials and trouble in the present. And they had bigger trials and troubles that were awaiting them in the future that they had yet to see. Whether it was a a devastating earthquake that would happen a few years after this and destroy the infrastructure, or whether it was the Romans actually moving the the major through fair road, the town would end up dying years from after uh, what Paul wrote here. He's writing to a people who know real life difficulties. What is needful in really, really hard seasons? Well, to be assured that even this thing is within the will of God for me. That whatever the loss is, whatever the trial is, whatever the pain, whatever the sickness, whatever the the disease, whatever it is, to be assured that all of life would be subsumed under this. And not not in the trite, like, well, it's God's will, it's in his hands. Like, no, not, not in that way but in a deep abiding way of saying, I know that he has the hairs of my head numbered and nothing good or bad can happen to me outside of the will of my heavenly father. So if this happened, it's obviously within the will of my heavenly father and, and he's good and I can trust him. Doesn't make it all of a sudden easy. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden life becomes just smooth sailing no, quite the contrary. Very few times, if ever, do you in, the, in a season of ease need to be assured of the will of God for you. Like on vacation with the waves lapping at your legs and whatever beverage, you're not like, Lord, help me know this is your will. You're like, no, I know this is God's will for my life right now. In this moment, I've never been so assured. Those aren't the moments. It's in the hard seasons. It's when... The, the clouds of life seem to obscure the smiling face of God upon your life. Or it just feels like a, a straight out frown. It's in those moments that the prayer is for the saint to rest in the will of God for them. To rest that I am in his hand. I'm in Christ's hand. I'm in the Father's hand. And no one is stronger than they to take me out of that hand. And so the seasons of difficulty, heartbreaking though they might be, excruciating though they might be, dark though they might be, the prayer that they would endure. Isn't this what we pray for each other within this church? In the midst of seasons of great difficulty, Lord, be near. Lord, comfort. Sometimes we even just use the term, Lord, be with them. In whatever strengthening, encouraging, enlivening way, Be with them. Keep them from stumbling. Make them rest in your providential care. That's the way a church prays for each other. 
This is the way we should pray for all of us that we would all follow the Lord Jesus Christ all the way until we cross the river to this celestial city. And on the way to it, for those who spend time in Doubting Castle, praying, oh God, remind them that they have the key. For those who suffer loss or who encounter the two giants along the way, to continue with Bunyan's imagery, that God would deliver them from that. From those who befall a swift and hard uh, opposition from whether it's Apollyon or, or however the imagery would go in Bunyan's work, that God would be there strengthening, keeping, and causing them to rest in the convicted sense that even this comes from the good hand of my Father. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we pray that you would make us more and more into a church like we're finding here at the end of Colossians. We thank you that you delight to save all kinds of people. We thank you that you've made us into a family. Thank you that you've provided for us brothers and sisters and and mothers and the people who genuinely love our souls. Lord, help us to pray for each other. We confess we don't pray as we should. Help us by your spirit. Stir up in us a spirit of prayer that we would storm your mercy seat, that we would not be satisfied until we all arrive upon the shores of heaven, that we would seek your face together as a church family. Father, I pray, especially for those in our midst that feel lonely, oh God, show us who they are and give us a heart eager to welcome Shape us more and more into a warm and welcoming family, just as Christ has done to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.